Well, if you want to buy me a cup of coffee, I'll have a conversation with you as well. <laughs> Today, we're going to about talk about something that touches every single follower of Jesus. It's something that none of us desire, but none of us can avoid. We read about it in the early chapter of the book of Acts, the New Testament book we're studying throughout this year. But it really begins to ratchet up and intensify in chapters 6 and 7. In Acts chapter 7, here's what we read. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But the council cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. Today we're going to talk about hostility. Hostility and holiness. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, we need the Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture. I need the Holy Spirit to enable me to teach faithfully. We all need the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand and apply what we hear. So as we always pray, because the need remains the same, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us faith to believe and courage to obey. Help us to grow in grace and in our knowledge of God. And we pray this for the honor of Christ, for the welfare of his people, for the sake of a broken world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. This past week, I received several anonymous phone messages, four to be exact. They came from an obviously troubled woman who was out of touch with reality. Now, I recognized her voice immediately because she calls periodically, maybe about four or five times a year. And she always has the same message. She calls to remind me that I'm the devil, or at least the son of Satan, and ACAC is a pit of vipers, and none of us can be trusted, and we're not getting a nickel of her money. <laughs> now, her rants aren't really unsettling in any way because they're so out of touch with reality. They bear no resemblance to reality. But they are nonetheless unpleasant to listen to because nobody... Nobody relishes being vilified and falsely accused. Now, when hostility like that comes from somebody who's obviously out of touch with reality, we can shake that off pretty quickly. But you can't shake it off so easily when it's voiced by your neighbors or family members or coworkers or the culture at large and when it attacks who you are in Christ and everything you believe in as a follower of Christ. It's not so easy to shake it off when you're being maligned in social media 
and disparaged by voices in the arena of science, education, politics, entertainment, religion, and the arts. It can become discouraging, disheartening. And if we aren't careful, it can become what Satan wants it to become. It can become intimidating. So as Jesus' followers, like it or not, we have to learn how to cope with hostility. Because as the story of Stephen and countless others clearly attests, until Jesus returns, hostility towards his followers is here to stay. If you've read the Gospels, you know that they're not identical. They all deal with the life of Christ, but John mentions some things that Matthew omits, and Luke covers some things that Mark doesn't cover. But all four gospel accounts record the same statement by Jesus. And God doesn't repeat himself unless there's a good reason to do so. In all four gospel accounts, we're reminded that Jesus' followers will often be hated because of him and his message. That's what Jesus said, you will be hated because of me and my words. So the first thing I want to emphasize today in regards to hostility, it has little to do with us. And it has a great deal to do with Jesus. The early church could testify to that fact. Think about them. They were a community that modeled peace in a city that hadn't known peace and prayed for peace. You would think they would have been welcomed. They were a community of faith that practiced generosity and justice in a world that is hungry for generosity and for justice. But yet, they quickly found themselves facing determined hatred. Now, before we consider why that was the case for them and why it remains the case for us today, I do want to emphasize something. I want to say that there are occasions when hostility is about us. To put it differently, not all religious persecution is religious or persecution. Sometimes it is a fair indictment. (laughs) on faith that isn't living up to its claims. The same kind of indictment that was often found on the lips of Jesus. Now, I'm saying that for two reasons. First of all, in intellectual honesty, we have to acknowledge that there have been times in human history when people of faith have been the persecutors rather than the persecuted, and they've done it in Jesus' name. And the fact that people could do things in Jesus' name that flat out contradict everything Jesus stood for reminds us of the depths of human hypocrisy and the corrosive effect of human sin. But the primary reason I want to emphasize this before we move on is because in our cultural context, Increasing numbers of Jesus' followers have brought hostility their way 
because they have unwittingly or intentionally aligned themselves with equal parts devotion to God and self-interest. Or worse, primarily self-interest with just a tint of devotion to God. Far too often we see believers aligning themselves with cultural agendas, political agendas, economic agendas, nationalistic agendas, ethnic agendas, rather than the agenda of Christ. They use Jesus to undergird other agendas, to legitimize other agendas. And that creates fair criticism. Because we're to follow Jesus, not Jesus and the agenda of the day. In far too many places, because of that, I see believers embracing reactionary anger rather than redemptive, proactive love. And too often, anger becomes the driving force in their thinking, the driving force in their social commentary, the motivating force in their emotions. And the results are tragic. I want to remind you, the early church faced determined hatred, despite the fact they were diligent in love. But sometimes in the court of public opinion, in the United States, the church is seen as a bastion of determined hatred rather than a place of diligent love. And sometimes it's because of the things believers do and say. So caution is always in order when we're inclined to see religious persecution because even God's enemies occasionally speak the truth. And when they do, self-pity may be what we feel, but self-awareness is what we need. Awareness that leads to repentance and change. Now, a word of caution. If we've behaved badly and need to repent and change, that change should always be rooted in a passion for the glory of God and concern for our mission in the world. It should never be pursued in the hopes of somehow placating the world and having peace with the world and gaining relief from society's hostility. Because getting relief from society's hostility is a fool's errand. As the book of Acts reminds us, when the church is authentic in its holiness, it will be hated by the world. And exhibit one underlying that point is Jesus himself. Jesus was perfect in his holiness, flawless in his character. He loved like no other being has ever loved on the face of the earth. And how did the world treat him? They couldn't get rid of him soon enough. And Jesus said, you're not going to fare any better. They hated me. They will hate you because of me and because of my words. You see, those who 
follow Jesus are guaranteed hostility from the world is never going to be very far away because Jesus and his words are a threat to those who have invested in evil, a threat to those who have put all their assets in lies and evil. That was the case in Acts, and it remains the case today. Jesus and his words are inseparable because Jesus' words interpret his heart in terms that we can understand. And for those who have placed all their assets in substitutes for God, for those who have placed all of their confidence in idols, they don't like Jesus' terms. Not at all, because Jesus' words remind us that we are not inherently wonderful, we are incredibly broken. We are not all that in a bag of chips and the best thing that ever happened to the human race. We are incredibly broken and consistently selfish. Jesus' words indict human pride. Jesus' words mount a frontal assault against human arrogance and human power. Jesus' words debunk the twin myths of human wisdom and human self-sufficiency. Jesus' words name evils that we would prefer to remain anonymous. Jesus' words uncover motives and thoughts that we would prefer to remain concealed. Jesus' words demand that we abandon the evils that we have come to trust. Jesus' words hold out the hope of recovery from the addiction to sin that we still cherish. That's why those who shun the words of Jesus often fancy themselves free thinkers. But the reality is they are not free thinkers because they rarely, if ever, cross the border into the words of Jesus, even for a brief visit, let alone for a permanent address. If somebody's a free thinker, I want to ask them, have you read the Word of God and taken it seriously? Most haven't. Because most would prefer the lies around which they've organized their lives would go unchallenged. Voltaire made this suggestion. He said, those who walk on the well-trodden path will always throw stones at those who are showing a new road. <laughs> That's what Stephen was doing, and they literally threw stones at him. So it's little wonder that Jesus said, those who follow me, those who faithfully declare my words, will encounter hatred and hostility and scorn and resistance. So despite the selfless faith of that early church, despite their generosity and their caring for their own, and despite a message that had transformed thieves into givers and haters into lovers, Despite all of that, it was only a matter of time till somebody was murdered for the name of Christ. And that honor would fall to Stephen. You see, the Jesus in him and the words of Jesus spoken by him made him a threat to the corrupt religious leaders, 
They had already seen a number of their cronies become converts, and they knew if that trend continued, their little kingdom was going to crumble. So they had to do something. So they brought him before them. And he boldly reminded them that their ancestors had a long history of getting it wrong. (laughs) That their ancestors had repeatedly fought against God and that the apple hadn't fallen very far from the tree. And when he said that, it was the last straw. That sucker had to die. But as the first martyr of the church age, Stephen's response to persecution and Jesus' response to Stephen has much to say to us as we navigate the inevitable hostility of society. We saw last week that Stephen was one of the seven selected to oversee the benevolence to the Hellenist widows. And we learned that he was full of two things. He was full of wisdom and he was full of the Holy Spirit and spirit power. But he still suffered. And I want to suggest that that reminds us of two very important facts. First of all, the hostility of the world is not an indictment on our intelligence. Now, that should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyhow because the world continually bombards us with that accusation. You're familiar with it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're uneducated, you're uninformed, you're naive, you're a fool. You're unscientific. You can't have a brain and follow Jesus. You hear it all the time. And sometimes believers can get intimidated by such nonsense. We can allow it to silence us. But the Word of God tells us that the exact opposite is true. The Word tells us that reverence for God, belief in God as God, is the foundation, the indispensable starting point for wisdom. If you start anywhere else, you're not going to arrive at truth. That's why Jesus said the unbelieving are always learning, but they never arrive at the destination of truth. And what good is learning if you never arrive at truth? That's a real fool's errand. Because you don't know what to do with your learning. Unless you arrive at truth, you learn how to split the atom. And instead of using it solely to heat homes, you use it to destroy cities. Scripture tells us anyone who denies the existence of God is a fool. A fool. Paul tells us in his Corinthian letters that the unbelieving can't understand the wisdom of God. To them, it will always be foolishness because even though they call themselves spiritual, they are not spiritual, they are spiritually dead. Scripture only uses the term spiritual for those who are alive through the Spirit of Christ. Everyone else God refers to as dead in sin, and dead people don't grasp anything. Their spiritual functions don't function. So contrary to the predictable threadbare arguments of hostility 
You do not have to check your brain at the church door. But you do have to check your ego. And therein lies the source of the hostility. Second, the fact that Stephen was the first martyr reminds us that the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't prevent persecution. In fact, it often intensifies it. Those who think the power of the Spirit means that they can cast out every evil, cast aside every adversity, crush every adversary, well, they have a sadly deficient view of both the Holy Spirit and the power of God. As I've shared with you many times, power is the ability to accomplish a purpose. God's Power is the ability to accomplish God's purpose. God's purpose is to make his people holy, complete, lacking nothing, and to use us in the recovery of the world. His purpose is not our popularity. His purpose is not our comfort. His purpose is not our convenience. And one of the greatest hindrances to our holiness, which is God's purpose, is something the Bible calls the love of the world. The love of the world doesn't mean the love of people, doesn't mean the love of the planet. When Scripture says do not love the world, it means don't fall in love with the thinking and the value systems and the ways of unbelieving humanity. Do not love the world. Do you know how many times God says in the New Testament, do not love the world? love not the world. He says it again and again and again. Why? Because we're all taken in by the bright lights and the empty promises of the world. We struggle with that thing of do not love the world. So here's what I'd like to suggest. When you combine Jesus' prophecy that we would be hated with a real understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit, I'd like to suggest that the hostility of the world can be made to serve the purposes of God, how it helps prevent the love of the world. Hostility reminds us the things that we're tempted by, the things we're easily enamored with, are not our friends. You see, persecution, hostility, is the inevitable result of the clash between two diametrically opposed worldviews and value systems. And when they clash, God reminds us that the thinking and the ways of unbelieving humanity is not our friend and that friendship with the world, here's what Scripture says, friendship with the world is hostility towards God. See, when I buy into the thinking and the ways of the world, it's like putting bullets in a gun that's aimed directly at me. I'm not doing myself any, dis any favor. I'm ensuring my own loss because I'm putting myself at odds with God. Whereas a child of God, he will lovingly discipline me, but sometimes not until I've experienced the bitter consequences. The hostility of the world reminds us that our friends that don't know Jesus are not neutral. They are at odds with God. They may be wonderful people. They may be nicer than some Christians you know. But they are at odds with God. Some people shake their fist at God. Other people just benignly ignore him. But both are at odds with God. 
So to put it simply, the world's hostility can diminish our hostility toward God by making evil less attractive. Hostility reminds you where the dividing line is, what the dividing line is about. It reminds you who you are and that you are an alien in this world, that your citizenship is in heaven, and that you need to put on the full armor of God every day because every day is going to bring an assault of evil against your senses and against your soul. Hostility helps us avoid compromise. See, for far too long, believers in this nation had it pretty easy. So what did they do? They compromised. Now we're facing increased hostility, and we can turn that to our advantage. Stephen's experience revealed something else that will help you navigate hostility. When we suffer, Jesus stands with us and Jesus stands for us. And what greater privilege than to have Jesus stand with you and for you? No wonder Jesus said, when you encounter persecution, rejoice. See, God always prepares us for what lies ahead, whether we recognize it or not. So just moments before Stephen was cruelly stoned to death, he had a vision, one of the most inspiring in all of Scripture. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, how significant is that? Twelve times in the New Testament, Jesus is described as being seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because that was God's way of saying the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins and for mine, was all that was needed. Jesus didn't have to do it again. Jesus didn't have to add anything to it. Jesus didn't have to do anything more. When the priest sat down in the Old Testament, it meant the sacrifice had been accepted and his work was over. So Jesus seated at the right hand of God means just what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. I've done everything. You don't need to add anything to what I've done. I've taken care of everything. But when Stephen saw Jesus, he was standing. Because when Stephen took a stand for Jesus, Jesus took a stand for him. And I think he was making it clear, Stephen, my task as high priest is finished but my task as your loving and caring shepherd is not done. So, son, they're about to take your life, but as they are, I want you to know, I feel it, I care about it, I'm with you, I'm for you. They're not ending your life. It's just about to begin. Jesus was keeping the ancient promise. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't be afraid for I am with you. He stood to welcome Stephen home. Stephen got a standing ovation from heaven. How awesome is that? So just as Daniel wasn't afraid in a den of lions because he knew the lion of Judah was there with him, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't afraid as they went in the fiery furnace because they knew their God, who is an all-consuming fire, was there with them. Stephen didn't fear stoning because he knew the stone that the builders rejected, who is the chief cornerstone of the church, was standing and was there with him. 
So when the world calls you an idiot and a hater and an intolerant bigot and a fool, remember, Jesus is standing with you. Jesus is standing with you. And I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but let me remind you of this because it really needs repeating. The world doesn't know what tolerance is. If you understand tolerance, you'll understand you can't be tolerant unless you're opposed to something. If you aren't opposed to anything, you aren't tolerant. You're morally ambiguous. You have no fences. To be tolerant, you have to be opposed. So when Christians who are opposed to sin in the world love their neighbors, that's tolerance. When those who hate Christ, hate the words of Christ, hate the cause of Christ, hate the church of Christ, want to silence anybody who disagrees with them in the name of tolerance, that is a pathetic joke for the morally insane. The most intolerant people in America are the prophets of tolerance. And the greatest haters are the ones who like to use the word love. They advocate for the homeless as a class, but God forbid light of life should try to put some homeless in their neighborhood. They advocate for racial justice, but God forbid they have a black neighbor or a Hispanic neighbor. Don't let that intimidate you as a child of God. It's pathetic. It's intellectual dishonesty and spiritual death. There's nothing to be intimidated by. The hostility of the world is never easy. It's never pleasant. That's why it's called hostility. But it's easier to bear, and it can help your holiness if if you don't take it personally unless you need to for a brief portion of your life. If you remember that ultimately it's not about us, it's about Jesus and his words. If you remember, it's not a referendum on your intelligence or your fullness in the spirit. If you remind yourself, it can remind you of the lines of separation so you don't love the world. And if you know that as you're being hated, you're not being hated alone. Jesus is standing with you, and Jesus is standing for you. Look, the world could take Stephen's life, but it couldn't take his eternal life. It could take his breath, but it couldn't take his holiness. And here's the irony. They thought they were silencing him. How long ago did that happen? Who are we talking about today in the 21st century? Yeah, good luck. Good luck with silencing the voice of God. Good luck with silencing the voice of God. You know, in the Islamic world, unprecedented numbers of Muslims are coming to Jesus. They're in societies that prohibit missions, but Jesus is appearing to them and speaking to them in their dreams. So the world can hate you, but it it can't really silence you. And don't let it silence you.
And remember, sometimes that person you work with who's really vocal about their hatred of Christians, they may be a hungry person who wants to find out if you believe what you believe. And if you show them that you do, they might, like Saul, become a passionate follower of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we don't like it when people don't like us. Nobody does. We don't enjoy it when they say horrible things about us. Nobody does. But Lord, it's not self-pity that we need. It's awareness of Jesus that we need. So in a culture of increasing intolerance and hatred by those who fancy themselves tolerant and loving, in a culture that vilifies the follower of Jesus. Lord, help us to remember it's predictable. We're not the first. We won't be the last. And that frankly, what we experience in comparison to many of our brothers and sisters around the world isn't even worthy of the word persecution. But help us to remember what's really going on and refuse to let that set our agenda. Let our agenda be set by word and spirit. Help us to rejoice when persecuted. Love our enemies. Do good to those who speak ill of us and provide those who are interested with a true alternative. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen, amen. And by the way, if the world hates you, at least know I love you, all right? God bless you.